0: Hello and welcome to Your Booked. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. My latest novel, Limelight, is out now in hardback. Thank you so much to everyone who has bought it and read it. It makes me so happy to hear from you. There are signed copies available at indie bookshops all over the country. If you'd like a personalised, dedicated copy of Limelight, or Careering, which is out now in paperback, or any of my books, you can order one from the Margate Bookshop, who deliver nationwide. Hopefully I'll see some of you at Waterstones, Cambridge on Wednesday the 28th of June with Lucy Vine. I'm also appearing at Also Festival on the 15th of July with Ella Bertoad and Primadonna Festival on the 28th of July with Rebecca Humphreys. More dates to be announced. Now on to today's guest. We took to the author and The Times' chief foreign correspondent Christina Lamb at JLS Sineva a special intimate edition of the Jaipur Literary Festival, We're so grateful to Suniva for hosting us in the Resort Bookshop and a special thanks to Melissa Kelly, the Barefoot bookseller. We'll be hearing more from her soon. We're celebrating the paperback publication of Christina's latest book, The Prince Rupert Hotel for the Homeless, a true story of love and compassion amid a pandemic. When the world went into lockdown and Christina couldn't travel, she had to look for stories closer to home. This is an account of what happened when she moved into a hotel which allocated its spare rooms to homeless people over lockdown. As with everything, Christina writes, it's impossible not to be deeply moved by this and most importantly, to end up vowing to do whatever we can to make a difference. We talked about bravery, poetry, travel and secret sewing circles. Please be aware that in this conversation we do talk about violence against women and other very sensitive subjects and it might be difficult to listen to. Thank you. So, Christina, I'd love to start by asking if there is a particular book you remember choosing as a younger reader that really ignited your curiosity about the world and what you have gone on to do.
1: Goodness. Uh, Well, I read voraciously when I was a child. Uh, We used to have a mobile library, which came, I mean, this was actually in South London, so it wasn't that we were somewhere remote, but a big blue van used to come twice a week and... I used to sit in that van and go through all the books. And then on Saturdays, I used to go to the library while my parents were shopping. And uh, and I read really indiscriminately. I mean, my parents uh, had... My father had left school at 14, so he wasn't very educated, but he always read a lot. So I tended to often read things... Possibly quite inappropriate. I mean, um, I remember reading a lot about lots of Dennis Wheatley novels and um, sort, sort of a cult. Black magic y kind of the um, astral plane. And uh, science fiction I read a lot. And not really any of the sort of classics. It was much more just anything that we found. And um, so I actually read more improving books when I was <laughs> much older. So were you just sort of on a
0: mission to kind of just be in the library and read whatever you hadn't read before?
1: Yeah, i just read anything because I read a lot. And uh, But I also always read, I, I mean, loved Russian books. I read, like, Dostoevsky a lot. And, um, and I think because I felt that we lived in a really uninteresting suburb <laughs> of South London that there seemed to me a whole big world out there through reading so I can't particularly say a specific book because it was just so many but I mean they were mostly male writers but I do remember discovering the Brontes and their story and how romantic that was and how they'd written those tiny little books themselves when they were kids and so I read them a lot. <laughs> there is something
0: really thrilling that even now I still think about and think, how did that happen when they, you know, were um, for all I know, they, they might have been you know, there knowing no one, for, there might be actually more sort of broad information that maybe they were very social and popular and there was a lot going on there, but um, having to imagine all of those universes because it was that or kind of be in reality and that all of those imaginations of coexisting and being so discreet but so vivid
1: yes definitely do you have a favorite Bronte book um I suppose Wuthering Heights <laughs> um the romance of Heathcliff but I do think that reading that made me aware that most of the other books I was reading were by men uh, apart from Enie Blyton of course when I was younger um and Tove Jansen, the Mootman books I used to like I always loved poetry, actually. My dad used to buy me every Christmas something called the Fireside Book of Poems, which was a small collection of books, and that was, like, one of my highlights at Christmas.
0: I feel like I can sort of picture that cover. I might have seen it somewhere.
1: (laughs) And it's interesting, I was just talking about this with somebody earlier, how lots of war correspondents, a lot of us seem to travel with books of poems, and... Um, maybe because, you know, they're short and quick to read or it's like taking you to some completely different place out of where you are. Are there any particular poetry books or poets that you like to travel with? So all sorts of things, but recently I've been travelling with um, books by a Polish poet called Wyslava Zimborska, and her books a lot are about war and what happens during war. But I also... Read a lot of novels when I'm traveling. I read nonfiction a lot, I think, for work, uh, because being a foreign correspondent, I tend to read books about the places that I'm reporting on. But when I'm traveling, I, I really like to have a good novel.
0: Have you brought any with you?
1: Well, actually, having said that, I really like a good novel. Uh, what I'm reading at the moment is Winnie and Nelson, Johnny Steenberg's book, which is an absolutely incredible. Um, inside look at the marriage of Nelson Mandela and uh, Winnie Mandela.
0: Please tell me about it because um, I've not read that
1: book and that is a marriage I have many questions about. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's very interesting because obviously, you know, he was such an icon. I'm lucky enough to have met him a couple of times because I was based in South Africa um, and he's one of those people that really was one of those people that really has this aura about them. And I also met Winnie, who uh, obviously there was <laughs> a lot of um, questions about. And so this book, it, it's sad in a way because it's sort of really exposing what was going on inside that very public marriage. And then, of course, you know N- Nelson was in Robin Island in jail for 27 years, and when he got involved in all sorts of things and there's a lot more about the violence in Soweto and the murders of young boys uh, so-called Mandela Football Club uh, than, than I knew about so yeah I really recommend that book.
0: That does sound fascinating and does it remind you of when you were there? Are
1: there
0: sort of part like memories you have that sort of somehow now more vivid in context or... yes
1: because some of the places that he writes about i've been to and also having met them each uh of course i met them you know long after at the moment in the book I, it's early on in their marriage but so i met Mandela when he'd just taken office in South Africa so that was in 94 and I guess I met Winnie the year after that but it's always interesting when you have such famous figures and then to start to know a bit more about what was really going on and uh, Johnny Steenberg found this real treasure trove of, of letters that Mandela had written during his time incarcerated. What are some of the biographies and memoirs that you come back to? Um, So I read a lot, I mean I am a huge fan of Ryszard Kapuscinski, the Polish, late Polish journalist and travel writer Uh, I absolutely adore his books and have recommended them to a lot of young journalists. books like The Soccer War um, because I think it really shows what you can do with journalism the sort of narrative and they're very literary books however as you probably know in recent years there have been a lot of questions about his reporting that some of the places he wrote about he wasn't there or he didn't actually see some of the things and that also he was working for Polish intelligence so that's all been really disappointing because he was one of my heroes but I still think you know despite all of that there is you know a lot of the things he did go and see and report on he was everywhere and mostly in Africa but also in Latin America this is time of the Cold War and I mean his writing is just incredible.
0: That's really interesting how your experience of reading and how that relationship shifts because I think the intimacy of reading is so intense and you do, I mean even you know when reading novels I get very involved and absorbed very very quickly and I said you know I, if it's good I believe in that world when I'm reading I'm not thinking this is fiction which <laughs> is very suggestible but what it is to have that kind of relationship with a writer albeit it's sort of, when you're reading, it's kind of one-sided, even though it doesn't feel it. And
1: then to feel, to find out that all is not what it seems. I mean, as a foreign correspondent, I feel it's really important to actually go to the places, write about what I never write, about something I don't see, and meet the people for yourself. And, you know, it's always very disappointing when you discover that something you've read that you think is really good isn't actually quite what it seems, and unfortunately, that happens quite a lot. And I think there's a real onus on us as journalists at the moment, at a time when there's a lot of questions about fake news and alternative facts, to really, you know, make sure that what we're doing is uh, beyond question. But I, I also read, you know, quite a lot of foreign authors and. Uh, Uh, another sort of reportage type writer is Svetlana Aleksevich from Belarus and again I like reading her because she to me shows what you can do with reporting in a different way so she wrote a book for example called The Unwomanly Face of War which is about uh, Soviet women and it's It's like a pastiche of, like, each... She somehow puts together a a narrative, but through just one paragraph or a few quotes from each person she's interviewed. It's very clever. So I'm very interested because, you know, I'm always trying to... I'm a storyteller myself. That's what I do in my journalism and my books, that I'm trying to find ways to convey sometimes quite difficult subjects. And so I'm always interested to see how people have done things in different ways.
0: Are there any books you remember reading where you sort of have an almost sort of visceral and immediate reaction to, this is about a place and I am going to go to that place, I'm going to get the plane tomorrow? (laughs)
1: Um, I mean, I read books when I was a teenager um, about all sorts of places, just in general, made me very conscious that there was a more exciting world out there than the place I was living in and that I wanted to go and see it. So it wasn't particularly one book that I read that I thought, okay, I want to go to this place. Uh, I think because I was reading so many books, it was quite quite difficult to just um, pick one like that. I mean, I also really read I uh, really like Hemingway's books so because of the craft of it you know the, those very short sentences very sparse and the way that you know he drives the story on and the characters uh, I mean I have some issues with the sort of portrayal of women um, but yeah I, I'm a big fan of his writing and then in terms of novels so uh, I actually really like Murakami, the Japanese also, just because it's so different to anything else that I read.
0: I don't know if this is true or not, and I keep meaning to actually investigate it because it's sort of purely anecdotal, but I think the most sort of common Murakami translations, I think it's the person who translates um, Scott Fitzgerald into Japanese. And they're quite, you know, they're sort of very beautiful and very measured and... Had that sort of that gravity and that sound but there is another translator who translates some of the books into English and it's much shorter sentences all kind of in the present tense and it's quite poppy and jumpy and it's the same story but with a very different feel and that's interesting I love that sort of that subtlety of it's the same language but it's it's not because I th- I remember reading Murakami as a student it felt at the time because I did an English degree and I Really, really struggled with it. I was not; um, I could not write good academic essays, and I just wanted to read books. And I was bad at reading books about books about books. Um, <laughs> and reading Murakami felt like a kind of rebellion then. And it, that voice sort of felt really fresh. And I'd not read stories like those. Do you have a, a particular novel of his that you
1: especially love? Like Kafka on the Shore, but Norwegian Woods, I also really like. And yeah. I like cats, and cats always seem to feature in his books. But also, because recently I've been reporting a lot in Ukraine, so when I report in countries, I like to read not just about those countries, but to read literature from those countries. So, uh, so like many people, <laughs> I think I've been discovering belatedly Andrei Kurkov, and I love Death and the Penguin. I think that's a wonderful book.
0: What do you think is going to happen next in terms of
1: ukrainian literature well i mean the good thing about if you can say that there's anything positive about the war but um, it is meaning that there's a lot more focus on ukraine and so people are discovering i probably wouldn't have read Andrei kirkhoff if it hadn't been for the war unless somebody i knew had randomly recommended it um and so now i've actually met quite a lot of ukrainian writers and it's very interesting talking to them what i do find a bit dismaying is this whole idea in ukraine now because you know half the country was russian speaking and now there's this whole move to not speak russian to not have russian literature that the Uh, National Theatre in Lviv, the artistic director. I went when they first reopened last year after the invasion and they had their first ballet. It was an amazing evening. Um, And I spoke to the artistic director and he said, we are never going to do Swan Lake or any Russian ballets or music again. And, you know, just to wipe out an amazing culture uh, like that because of the war it seems to me very sad, but uh, it's not my country that's been invaded. Maybe I would feel differently.
0: But it's so hard to know when you think of the, the Ukrainians, as, well as you speak Russian, and that's very... It's it's really, really close yeah, to Yeah, Zelensky
1: really was, was a Russian speaker, not a Ukrainian speaker.
0: It's so complicated, isn't it, with the the classics? And I think, to a point, we do get the classics. We deserve that these... We love this work because... It is extraordinary and it means Yeah, but many of it...
1: those people that wrote things we consider classics, you know, were actually monsters in their private life or, well, you Hemingway. know, the way <laughs> they treated women. <laughs> or, but uh, I mentioned Hemingway earlier. I mean, do we then say, OK, we're not going to listen to any of that music or read any of those books because the people themselves were not good people? I, I don't agree. I think things can still...
0: Then it does make me wonder how many unperformed alternatives to Swan Lake are there? How many books are there for us to discover? That I think sometimes the heaviness of the canon. Yeah. Well I think it's a really important thing to, to have and refer to. And I, you know, I really, really love it when I read an author and I can feel what they have in there. Well you know, going back to Hemingway, I love and patch as a, quite a yes, lot of I people do, do, do that actually, you can yeah. really feel that yeah. I don't think um I hope she doesn't mind me saying this I hope it might never get back to her um you can feel the Hemingway for sure that we wouldn't have her writing those stories if he hadn't written those stories and I think it's like um you know I could never be any kind of builder um we don't want to smash down our load-bearing walls. And perhaps that's what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, that when you take away what what we have loved, you take away a bit of us. Have you read this, Claire Derrida,
1: I think? No. She wrote a
0: really brilliant piece, The Paris Review, and it is about her growing up as a teenager and loving Woody Allen and Roman Polanski, especially in sort of... That was her oh, kind of okay. very intense relationship <laughs> with those films and feeling really sort of you know frightened and unmoored by what was happening
1: yeah obviously once you start to know things about people's I mean I don't feel quite the same about Hemingway's work having read now lots about him as a person but that doesn't stop me still admiring Mm. the, the writing I understand I mean Ukraine it's very visceral right their country's been invaded you know as we speak Uh, many people are being killed so it is something very present something very very difficult I also see I mean because of the nature of the work that I do many places don't have freedom to produce (laughs) anything um, you know that for example in Afghanistan which is where I've spent Majority of my career, it was the first place I went as a foreign correspondent 35 years ago. After the Taliban fell last time in 2001, going to Herat, uh, which is a beautiful city, it's my favorite place in Afghanistan, near the border with Iran, a very Persian city. And I was, I and mean, the Taliban had just fallen like two days before, and I was walking down a street and I noticed a sign and it said Herat Literary Society, so I was intrigued, so I went in and there was this man in black sitting there, and so, and as you'll remember, I mean, the Taliban, when they were in power before, actually banned books, so which is one thing they haven't done so far this time, so I said to him, Herat Literary Society, how could you have a literary society under the Taliban? and so he told me about how they'd hidden all these books and how they used to meet secretly and then i said to him were there any women writers so then he said yes come with me and he led me down an alleyway and there was a little placard on the wall and it said golden needle sewing school in persian so um i said what is this so so come in we went inside And there was a professor from Herat University, a professor of literature. And then they explained to me that basically there was this quite big group of young women writers in Herat. And when the Taliban had taken over and banned women from doing anything, they sat together and thought, what can we do? What is the one thing we're allowed to do by the Taliban? And they came up with sewing. So they set up this so-called sewing circle. And in fact, what they did, they used to go there twice a week with their bags full of like materials and scissors and sequins and things. Underneath, they had books. They had Virginia Woolf. They had Shakespeare. They had Pushkin. They had um books that they then would discuss in this house under the guise of sewing. Um, and their own works and I mean it really brought home to me that it shouldn't be that it's a luxury to live in a place with free speech but that many places don't have that and that these women were absolutely risking their lives by meeting and discussing books if they had been caught they would have been imprisoned they quite likely would have been hanged so I said to this professor, you know, you were taking such a huge risk. And he said to me, look, we, we're poor in everyday life. We don't have to be poor in culture, too. So I was incredibly moved by that. And actually, uh, the first book I wrote on Afghanistan is called The Sewing Circles of Herat because it, it it's a book about lots of things in Afghanistan, but it starts with that. But the sad thing is that, so, I mean, one of those women was a poet called Nadia Anjaman. And after the Taliban fell, these women started to, you know, write openly. And her poetry did very well. And she sold 3,000 copies of her book, which in Afghanistan, then mostly illiterate country, was enormous. 3,000 copies of poetry book is a lot, yeah. actually, anyway. So she started being invited to go and speak at things. Her husband was jealous and furious and they had a small child and one day she'd got some invitations and he got very angry and he killed her and so even you know after the taliban it was still very hard situation for women he was jailed very temporarily and then he was released he's free now and I recommend her poetry, by the way. It's, I mean, it's, it has unfortunately not been translated into English. But recently I was in Portugal and by sheer chance I was in a place and they were having a book launch at the library that evening and it was to do with Afghanistan, so I was intrigued. And a Portuguese poetry publisher, Nuno Gomez had heard about this whole story and got her poems Translated, and so it was a launch of the book there
0: what a devastating and extraordinary story, and that human courage you know for those women to come together it sounds very simplistic, I know, but sort of to bring it back that that's that's how much it means to people to to read
1: and her. Well, I guess this has changed now that the Taliban have um, sadly taken over again. But her grave in Herat became a kind of shrine almost for young women in Herat to go to and remember her story. She was very young when she was killed. I think she was late 20s. After she was killed, I went and wrote a piece of Sunday Times magazine about what happened. And at the time, an American poet actually got in touch with me and said that she was really moved by the story. And so she kind of worked on the translation and then we tried to get people interested. But I think people sort of felt things had moved on from the Taliban. I mean, interestingly, now that the Taliban are back, it might be a time after the taliban took power again in afghanistan which was such a shock i mean for me personally it was really people often ask me don't you get traumatized by the things you report because i report on war and sexual violence and really terrible things but in a way the hardest thing was that because you know to have gone back and forth all those years seeing things change and then to see the, the taliban just come back again and it all go back to how it was. And one of the things that I feel very strongly about is there is absolutely no point in making women aware of their rights and talking about gender awareness to women if you don't do anything about the men. and. That's one of the things that went wrong in Afghanistan. If you look at the protests that there have been since Taliban took over, where are the men protesting? Right? There's only women. There's number of men that protested. I can count on the fingers of one hand. And, of course, they have been jailed. So other men might say, well, you know, if we come out, this is what will happen. But, you know, that's happening to the women, too. I think the story of Nadia Anjuman illustrates the fact that The society was still, even after the Taliban had gone, was still very misogynist and it was still a very difficult place for women. And so there should have been much more effort made on trying to change that. The thing that I feel strongest about in my writing as a journalist, but also really in books now increasingly, is telling the stories of women and realizing more and more how women have been written out of
0: Go to Bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at Bluenile.com for $50 off. Bluenile.com code LISTEN. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. We'll be back to Christina soon, but now it's time for my steal of the week. I've chosen Monsters A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Derrida. This is a sensitive and smart exploration of a complicated issue. What do we do with the art made by monsters, and what makes a monster in the first place? It's provocative, exhausting, and brilliant. It didn't give me answers. It posed more questions. But it created a space for uncertainty and confusion and cultural anxiety, and I'm grateful for that. Monsters is published by Sceptre and out now. Now back to Christina. Uh, Do you have any favourite funny books or are there any writers who make you laugh? But I suppose as well, perhaps, you know, when (laughs) travelling, you don't want to be, you know, in dangerous places and risking reading anything that might make you laugh out loud.
1: I don't know no I said to you I actually like to read books that take you away from where you are so that's why I mostly read novels and I mean the thing that I'm most dread is being stuck somewhere without anything to read so I remember a few years ago I was in must be about six seven years ago I I'd been sent to Calais to do something about the jungle, the migrants and refugees there. So I was sent to go and basically spend a day with these people in the jungle, and I'd been there before, and then spend the night with them trying to get onto these trucks. So I did that. And actually, my son had just finished his GCSEs and was sort of hanging around, feeling a bit kind of sorry for himself that he'd had to do all this work, with his revising. So I thought, I'll take him with me, because actually a lot of these refugees are also young people. He was 16 at the time. Um so and I was with a photographer who was a friend as well so I said to him do you mind if I take Lorenzo he said no so we went to Calais we go and it all worked very well because actually having Lorenzo with us was good because a lot of the refugees were his age and so we're chatting to him um, generally they were a bit fed up with British papers and could be a bit hostile so it worked very well we talked a lot um we go out with them on the trucks come back at maybe four in the morning go to bed get up late in calais planning so we all meet up for a late breakfast and i was going to write the story and file and then we were going to go for lunch and head back to the uk so i'd literally taken an overnight case of uh, overnight bag so we're just having this breakfast and I get a call from my foreign editor saying that there's been a beheading in uh the south of France in Bordeaux I think it was um and he said there's a train from Calais like in half an hour and we've put you on it so like get to this train so I was like oh my god so I have to quickly grab my stuff I said to Justin of photographer do you mind taking Lorenzo back home with you and he said no So I run, get on this train. Then I'm on the train. While I'm on the train, I'm just looking at my phone and I see reports coming in of a massacre in Tunisia at Sousse on the beach, uh, of British tourists. So I call the paper and say, you sure you don't want me to go there? And they said, no, no, we're covered. So I'm thinking, really? Who's there? Anyway, so I have to get this train to Paris and then change to a train to go south. So I change at Paris. I'm on the train south. And, of course, then they call me and say, actually, we do need you to go to Tunisia. You're booked on this flight tonight. So get to the airport in Paris. So I'm like, now I'm on this other train. So I have to get off eventually when I could get the train back to Paris. Then I discover it, some kind of um, taxi strike, I think, a protest against Uber. So it was really impossible getting to the airport. I just get there on time. I get on this flight and fly to Tunis. And then to so arrive there about midnight on the Friday night, I work for a Sunday paper. So I did line Saturday. Um, and then I drive, I think it was three hours to suit So I get there about four, five in the morning and without having had any sleep when I get there actually that I get a message saying we still need the piece from Calais I'm thinking they wouldn't need that and meanwhile actually Lorenzo and Justin Justin's car had had a blowout of the tire so they'd got stuck another day in Calais anyway they so they actually sent me more stuff so I write this piece I didn't go to bed and then the next morning I'm on the beach talking to people going to hospitals it was a horrible story But it was a huge story because I can't remember the numbers, but more than 30 British, I think, were killed. And so they told me to stay. And I ended up staying there three weeks. I had taken one change of clothes. I didn't have anything else. Um, now you can buy things right elsewhere but I didn't have any books to read and that was so that was the worst thing to be three weeks in a place with nothing and it was really impossible to get like English books anywhere.
0: And I'm guessing with that story and that going on it would have been really good to be able to have some sort of you know an hour away from it to kind of process the world where you can be in. yeah just at night
1: when you you know you've been interviewing people all day and it's sort of often traumatic and people it's terrible things in that case you know it was horrible what people had seen people had lost relatives people had been badly hurt And so, like when you go to bed, it's kind of good to decompress, reading a novel about something completely different. And I didn't have that, (laughs) so always now, ever since then, even if I think I'm going somewhere for just a night, I take uh, like here actually, I have several books with me that I'm never going to read all those books. But you do not want to be caught short, not
0: when it's um, it is a long flight. So, as well as the um, uh, Winnie and Nelson book, what else have you
1: packed? So, I have the Romanticist William Boyd's novel. Oh, I um, love William Boyd. I've not yeah, read that I yet. Yeah, I love yet. William Boyd, but I haven't read that yet. So, I brought that with me. I bought it at the airport actually. And I also have Peter Frankpans' latest book. Is that the absolutely enormous one? Yes. <laughs> Did you pack a hard copy? Yes. <gasps> <I
0: have>. Wow. <laughs> Uh, I really love William Boyd, and Any Human Heart is a book that I think about a lot. My dad recommended it to me, and I did kind of think, oh, it's going to be a bit of a boy's book, isn't it? I'm not going to like this. Um, and I took it to our local beach. I think I read it in lockdown. Um, I live in uh, Margate in Kent, and I remember it being one like. The old cliche, I couldn't put it down. I just remember I sort of spent two days like with my elbows, sort of you know up and gripped, not being able to stop. And you know, it was sort of time for dinner, and I was bringing it to the table, which I don't think I've done since but i was sometimes
1: little. I don't like books like that because i I don't want them to be over too quickly. So actually, recently I read, I think, after everybody else, uh, lessons in chemistry, mm-hmm. which I think is wonderful actually my mum. Recommended it to me, and that I was reading wait hours every night, and so I wasn't getting enough sleep really, and it was all over too quickly. Sort of trying to ration it. We've had Bonnie on the podcast,
0: and it was really fascinating hearing about how she you know researched it and put it together by finding sort of 1950s chemistry textbooks that you can't really, even though you sort of can Google everything you need to know, you've got to be very specific about you know the knowledge that would have been available at that time but that is such again that's another story about
1: you know monstrous men and brilliant women finding sneaky ways to to surge up I think it also appealed to me because uh, a little known fact about me is I went to university to study chemistry (laughs) I didn't know that um, even though I yeah I actually managed to switch subjects after a year but uh (laughs) Did it bring it back? Did it make you want to It certainly didn't make make, make <laughs> bring me bring it back? My mind is it's interesting. My mine I remember almost nothing of the, the chemistry that I did. It's as if the moment I switched subject, my mind just rejected all of the chemistry I'd ever learned. As if it knew yes. that was not not what <laughs> you wanted. Me. That was not the way. I didn't look at school. I always wanted to be a writer, I wanted to be a novelist. I didn't I did science, I feel kind of angry about it because uh, I went to one of the last grammar schools and if you were bright, so my best subjects were English and history and language really, but they made this feeling that if you were one of the brighter girls that you should do science because only stupid people did art subjects, right, so... So there was never really a question that I would do arts A levels. So I was channeled into doing chemistry, physics and maths, even though I didn't like any of those subjects. I wanted to be a writer and my best subject was English. So and of course then when I applied for university, you cannot apply to do English degree with a chemistry, physics and maths A level. So yes, so I always feel slightly annoyed about that I think it's very wrong to make people and this whole feeling too I mean I was told always you know you how can you be a writer how could you how that's not a career how can you make money and how could you live as a writer you seem to be doing fine (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's funny though isn't it because I do
0: remember that snobbery sort of when choosing this idea that you know fiction and novels and literature is something we've always had and needed and we've always been storytellers and it's always how we've made sense of each other and connect with each other and then you know I think until relatively recently when you think of how long we've been writing things down it's sort of like you know oh a novel how how grubby but then I do quite like grubby novels so
1: I can't (laughs) it wasn't that it was grubby it was just the idea I think my family they couldn't imagine a job that wasn't a conventional job Mm. like you became a teacher or i if i was doing chemistry i could become a pharmacist not but my school was like that too
0: i always think your parents want you to do a job where you could show them a drawing of it (laughs) (laughs) It would be quite easy to recognize (laughs) Finally, I'd love to ask you about the other than any books that you've brought with you on holiday. If there are any books coming up that you're excited about reading, or books that you'd like to recommend.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think now, I like I told you earlier, I for a long while I hadn't read any of the classics when I was a teenager or anything. So I really, apart from the Brontes, so for a long while, I was kind of catching up I think on reading things that I feel like I probably should have read earlier Um, but now I absolutely read for pleasure but my greatest pleasure really is discovering Uh, non-English authors, you know, from other places, because it's often very different. And somebody I discovered quite recently is a Rwandan writer called Scholastica Mukasonga. A number of um, wonderful books. They're quite small books. Um, One of them is called A Barefoot Woman. And she writes, you know, I talked earlier about how I like using different ways to tell difficult stories and she writes about the Rwandan genocide actually but through family experiences, through experiences of uh, girls at a convent school and I think her writing is magical really wonderful.
0: Sounds like a book I really want to read and I got to say to be frightened of to, you know, a book about genocide that's quite complicated but the the human storytelling and the people affected that sounds
1: really vivid. Yeah. And sounds like well, as somebody who's written a book about war rape, it's quite weird when you've written a book and people buy tell you, oh, I've bought your book, and you can't say, oh, I hope you enjoy yes. it. <laughs> what do you <laughs> say? Of course, I'm delighted always if people have bought my books. So, and, and it, it's, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote that book is because I feel so strongly about what's happening and I want people to know it's, you know, it's, a campaign really as well as a, a book so I yeah I always say to people I hope you find it interesting
0: Christina it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast thank you so much for your time it's been so fascinating and enlightening I've really enjoyed this conversation I think I can I can say that well the, and being informed by the um, the moving and tragic parts <laughs> <laughs> thank you it's been great to talk to you huge thanks to Christina and to the Sunova Fushi JLS team The Prince Rupert Hotel for the Homeless is published by William Collins and out now. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by ACAST. You can find all the books that Christina mentioned at acast.com slash booked and you can see a selection at bookshop.org. You can find us and follow us on social media at Why Booked. Huge thanks to everyone who's given us a five-star review. We really, really appreciate it. And if you haven't done it yet and you've been listening for a little while, we would love it. It's the best way to help people to find the podcast and their new favourite book. Finally, I'll leave you with this from Tim Amanda Ngozi Adichie. Culture does not make people. People make culture. If it is true that the full humanity of women is not our culture, then we can and must make it our culture. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.